if you're trying to appeal to people who you want to have rent these, is that, is that, yeah. if you want to have appeal, it is to have, make sure that as much of the experience is consistent as, as possible. So it feels comfortable and familiar. So I would literally design it. So the light switches are in the same uh, place. The beds feel the same. The cupboards are uh, the same configuration. If they come furnished and the furnishing and everything is consistent. Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators, leaders, and uncommonly high achievers. Today on the show, we've got author and CEO advisor, Roger Martin. If you missed part one, please go back and, and hear about all his accomplishments. Roger, I think I wanted to jump in and talk about models. Well, let's start off for anybody who missed part one. Can you give everyone the name of the book and, and the concept again? Sure. The name of the book is A New Way to Think. And the concept of the book is an exploration of business models that are in popular use in the business world, if not dominant use, that aren't producing uh, what they uh, should be producing, but people keep using them anyway. And, and this is a book that's designed to fight that. What I say is that when you have a model that you keep using, but it doesn't produce the outcomes you want, you can say that model owns you, right? It somehow has, uh, uh, unreal control over you despite not working. And what I want people to do is own their models. And you own your model when you use a technique, you say, I'm going to try this. And if it doesn't work, you say, well, maybe I'll try it one more time, make some modifications, but watch it closely. But I'll then trash it and come up with a new model. And that's the purpose of the book, to provide that encouragement uh, to people. Yeah, let's do this. Let's, why don't you bring up another person who's in the book? And I'm sure we'll get to hear about the model with them. Okay, well, another one is Tim Brown. and Like IDEO Tim Brown or? Sorry? Like IDEO Tim Brown? Yeah, IDEO Tim, uh, IDEO Tim Brown. And, and it's actually something we worked on, on together where w w the, the model that designers tend to have, not, not Tim Brown or, or, or David Kelly from whom, from whom he uh, learned it, is that the most important thing is the design of the artifact itself. But it turns out that the number one complaint of designers and of innovators in general is, I couldn't get my organization to adopt this new design or this new innovation, right? I'm sure you've, you've, you've heard that often. And that's because they're worried too much about the design of the artifact and too little on the design of the intervention. Because what you need to have happen if you want to do something new that's not been done before is have people change what they're doing to accept it, right? And that means designing the intervention into the current system so that your design takes shape. And here's where, where what, for those of you who know the firm IDEO, created by the late Bill Moggridge and, and David Kelly, really introduced the world to this notion of rapid iterative prototyping, right? So if you want to create, create something, you go to the customer's with an early low resolution uh, prototype. It doesn't have to be kind of a, 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 great, a great thing. If it's a Swiffer, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a sawed off mop handle with, with, with a couple of tissue pads on, on the bottom and say, you know, kind of, what do you think of that? And the customer will say, well, here's what I like about it. Here's what I don't like about it. You can go back, do a new iteration, another iteration, another iteration, another iteration. And in due course, you'll get something that they say, I love all of that. And that's the way IDEO designs 
better products. That's their signatures the firm and lots of lots and lots of people in that world have, ad have adopted that process. But why is it so successful is my question. And I asked this of David Kelly, uh, who's also a friend, uh, I asked him this on stage when he was launching his, his latest uh, uh, book, The Creative Confidence One. I said, David, did you ever, I know that, that your doctrine is to say the, this is what gets you a better product, right? Because you've gotten all this feedback from the consumer so that, it, that it's the best by the end. And I said, but did you ever contemplate that you're working on that? And as you're working on it, the people who are going to have to say, we're going to green light that we're going to put the Swiffer into production or, or whatever for, you know, the mouse for him, the computer mouse, which he created for Steve Jobs into, into production, that those people who are doing that are watching you get ever better and better and better and better response from the target customer. Did it, did it ever occur to you that you're making it more likely that they're going to say yes, even as the, the consumer says yes? And David Kelly said, hmm, no, I never thought of that, but, but I'll steal the idea, which he doesn't. He's a great, he's a great guy. So that's, that's the, the point of that chapter, which is, which is you have to think about about what you're doing to make it more likely that the people who have to green light your innovation are game to do that. At the same time, you're making the innovation itself better. And if you don't talk, if you don't think about the, the designing the intervention in that way, you're gonna end up designing a lot of things that maybe consumers would like, but are never gonna be produced. You know, the, I love that story. And I'm, I'm thinking about your world of like, writing a book, writing a great book isn't enough. You got to get people to find out about it. And there's absolutely. a lot of people involved in getting others to find out about a book, right? No, absolutely. And, and, and I think there are lots and lots of good books out there that never break through into the consciousness of, of people. I also used to say that about Monitor. Like we were a little startup in 1983, 80, 84. And, you know, I used to say, our great enemy is not people who say, I know Monitor and they suck. Our great enemy is people who say, do you make computers? Like, do you make monitors for computer? Like, what do you, what do you do? They've never heard of us. And that's, that's, you know, the advantage of, of why each of the big four accounting firms relatively easily expanded into uh, non-audit services like tax and consulting and IT consulting and all that. Why? It's because everybody in the world has, has heard about Deloitte, PwC, KPMG, E&Y. You've got, you've got what's called mental availability, which by the way, is another, another, you know, another chapter, chapter in the, in the book, which, which, you know, there's, there's a dominant model that says what you need to do is, is generate all sorts of customer loyalty. Right? And that's why we have met promoter score and Fred Reichelt's a friend. It's a, it's a good and important uh, thing and, and concept. But it turns out that all the neuroscience that we've learned about in the last 20-ish years says you should think about loyalty and the conscious mind as the tip of the iceberg. And what's beneath the water is the unconscious mind and habit. And that's way, way, way more powerful than, than loyalty. So it turns out that all of our brains just long for things that make it comfortable and things that are more automatic. Because the brain uses the mo more than your arms and legs in a day, uses, uses more energy than any other, other part of your body in a day. And so we've biologically learned to turn off our brains 
as much as humanly possible, right? So if you just think about it, I don't know if you drive to, 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 to work, yes, but if you actually had to think about every aspect of your drive to work, you know, I have to hold the steering wheel like this. And when I want to go that way, I have to turn it this much and this much, and I have to press on the gas and, oh, do I make a left here or a right here, whatever. You'd be exhausted by the time you get to work, right? Totally exhausted. But how much of that do you think about consciously and your drive, especially when it's the hundredth time? None, like none of it. You don't even know what you're doing with the steering wheel, know what you're doing with the gas pedal or brake. You don't even think about left, right, 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 left, and then in, in, into the parking garage. That's all automatic. It's habit. It is not a conscious, uh, conscious. And that ends up what drives kind of purchase and repurchase more than, than the conscious act of loyalty. Uh, and so focusing as we do on loyalty is, is less effective than focusing on habit. Okay. So while I've got a renowned CEO advisor here, I'm going to try and get some free CEO advice. Yeah, shoot. Okay. So are these, these tiny house adventure cabin resorts we're putting like near, you know, national parks and ski hills and beaches, surfing yeah, beaches yeah, and stuff, like yeah. real action sports destinations, right? Um, thinking about this idea of, of an emphasis towards habit over conscious loyalty. Yes. What, what kind of advice, what kind of questions should we be asking ourselves on our leadership team if we're trying to create that amongst the, the people who want to stay with us? You need to try and make that as uh, experience as familiar uh, as possible. So having the, so if you're trying to appeal to people who you want to have rent these, is that, is that, yeah. if, if you want to have appeal, it is to have, make sure that as much of the experience is consistent as, as possible. So it feels comfortable and familiar. So I would literally design it so the light switches are in the same uh, place, the beds feel the same, the cupboards are uh, the same configuration. If they come furnished and the furniture and everything is consistent. You can have things, it'll be in a different environment, right? On a ski hill, on a, on a beach, whatever, that's fine. But when they walk into your thing, it feels uh, utterly the most comfortable. Keep the colors consistent, especially your logo. Never, and I mean never, ever, ever changed your, your company colors. Figure out a color and stick with it because it's a visual cue that people go to immediately and, and try not to change your, your, your logo. You know, when marketers come in and say, you need to refresh this, they're wrong. Do not kind of uh, refresh, make the purchase experience as consistent as, as uh, possible, you know, so that when they come back, things are pre-populated, et cetera, so that, so that it's more automatic than not. Those would be, those would be the things off the top of my, top of my mind. Okay. You know, I, another question comes to mind is, you know, Monitor is such a well-respected firm and, and the, I mean, small consulting firms are a dime a dozen, right? They're, they're, you know, somebody in their $300 LLC is now a consulting firm, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, when you think about kind of the outside success that, that you guys had at Monitor, what do you attribute some of that? It was at that time being an innovator. So at that time in the 80s, even though it's hard for people to remember this era, the, the general way that the consulting firms operated would they, they'd say, they'd come to you and say, well, Mr. Larson, what's your problem? And you'd say, well, it's blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, thank you very much. We'll see you in six months. And they'd run off 
and and solve the problem come back with a deck that says here's here's what you should do that was de rigueur in 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 those days and we were the innovators that came in and said no that's not how you should do it for starters outsiders should not be on a consistent basis doing the strategy for a company the best strategy comes from within so our practice should be identifying a problem that the company wants to have solved and work absolutely hand in hand with them together on the solving of that problem as an example to them and training to them for how they might do it themselves without us and so we were the innovators that brought that to bear and the cool thing about that is it enabled us to work for the best companies in given industries because often the crummy companies were willing to say yeah go out and solve this for us because they wanted to you know kind of stay lazy and crummy the best companies were like no 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 if this is important we need to learn it so when we were like 10 people we won a beauty contest with McKinsey and Bain for P&G's first ever outside consulting assignment first ever <laughs> and and I still work at P&G 35 years later actually advising I've always advised their their CEOs but they now they now have adopted completely the methodology for strategy that we taught them. They've got their people all trained up in training programs and, and, and the like. So that was one thing. Again, these things seem sound, sound old, but at that time, all the uh, consulting firms in the industry, McKinsey, Bain BCG, had country practices that were just sort of loosely affiliated. There were country profit pools. Each country would recruit their own, own people, et cetera. And we said, you know, it sounds trite in retrospect, the world is globalizing. There are going to be more global companies. We're going to have a global firm where we have one profit pool, kind of we recruit as, as a global firm. We go to clients globally and not say, oh, our New York office will take this part of the project and that'll be 7 million. And, the, you know, the Frankfurt office will take this part and that'll be 4 million, et cetera. It's like, no, 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 no. You're hiring Monitor to solve your global problem. And then the third thing we said is that all the other consulting firms have this time to partner. You have to be on this track and it's up or out if you're not on the time to, time to partnership. And we said, nah, People develop individually. There is there is no if you're good. If you're above a bar, if you go slower or faster, it doesn't matter. If you're going faster, you go faster. You don't get slowed down by this. If you're going slower but progressing, uh, progressing anyway, that's that's fine with us too. So we were different in those three ways, and the that last one appealed to consultants. The the second one, the global appealed to more global companies. So we ended up working for a lot of uh, very global companies. And the first one appealed to really good companies. And so we always had as a client list, typically the best and most innovative company in their industry. And those helped us because I've always believed in professional services and, and you're sort of in the professional services kind of field your, yourself that you're only as good as your clients. So if you're working for not so good clients on on drab problems you'll never become awesome if you're working with really good companies on the on the trickiest problems in the world you'll get better you'll learn to be better <laughs> and that was us we learned i think very quickly by having awesome clients who who tossed us the most tricky problems it isn't it, it is an interesting way to think about it. I, I i think that's really insightful in a lot of ways i do think like for our investment firm like how do we get better so that, you know, larger family offices or, you know, much larger investors 
who already have their own real estate want want to have us, you know, babysit some of their money for them and multiply it, right? Like what what do we have to do to qualify for that? That person who who they can already buy multi-million dollar hotels without us. They could buy, you know, large, like the, you know, where their portfolio is bigger than ours. Why would sure. they trust us with some of their money? You know, sure. and it's it's a to, to solve a hard problem. So that's that's the that's the answer. Aim at aim at a dissatisfier. What is it about the people they now give money to that is dissatisfying and get them and solve that uh, problem, right? For us, there were people who were interested in strategy, but didn't want to have one of the other firms come in and solve their strategy problem for them without making their people better. So we solved a problem for them. There's another set of firms who said, you know, yeah, we have to have negotiations with the various offices of the consulting firm that's supposedly serving us about who's going to get what share of the revenue. That's not our problem. We solved that problem for them. So I would, I would, my advice to you would be to say what, what is annoying the hell out of, out of your, your clients. And I, and I wouldn't be going at at, you know, we can get a 1% higher return than who you're using now. I mean, that's a way to get business, but it's not as cool a way to get business as, you know, when we want to do something that's a little out of the, out of the ordinary, our current providers keep shoving us back into the ordinary. We want somebody who will embrace that, that alternative kind of desire we, we have and say, yeah, we'll figure, figure that out with you, right? It would be something like, something like that. You yeah. just, you just don't want to play, right? The, I talk about strategies in terms of answering questions, the core questions of which are where to play and how to win, right? The best strategies pick a different where to play than anybody else has played and a unique way of winning, right? The worst strategies pick the same place that everybody else is playing and attempts to win in the same way. In that case, it's going to be a bloody war where you're beating the crap out of each other every day and and not getting much for it because that great overlap puts all the power in the hands of your customers because your customers can genuinely say, Jess, you and whatever, Jane's firm, like are identical. Whose fees are so, lower. Yeah, whose fees are lower, right? Whose fees are lower? And, and, and you say... Well, we'll do it rather than for two and 20, we'll do it for 1.9 and, and 18. Jane, what will you do? 1.8, it's race to the bottom. A race, a race to the bottom. But the minute they say, well, you know, we like Jane's approach for some of the, 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 the money we want to put, it, put to work, but nobody else does what, what uh, Jess is doing. We're not going to give him all of our money, but this segment of our money, we want to give him. And, and you say two and 20 and they say, yeah, of course, as opposed to what, whatever. So it's pick, pick a territory where you can be unique. That is the absolute first rule of, of strategy. I, I've got this great big smile because I'm absolutely going to be playing this part of the interview over for my partners. Oh, really? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Well, you know, as I say, my my goal is always just to be useful. And there are some useful things about the way to think about strategy that, you know, I I would hope that what I've said when I've said it is pretty intuitive. But those things don't always occur to somebody who's not thinking about that aspect of, of, of competition. Because you were nodding immediately and said, 
Well, there, that's, that's what you want to do. You want to, you want to be able to provide advice that after you've said it seems obvious. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> it's my last couple of minutes with you here. Yeah. I, I'm interested in strategy as an author. I'm a, I'm a real audiobook nerd. I, I typically do, you know, two, three, four books a week. And, wow, um, you're good. And, and I've got three different books I've started so far. Anyways, I plan on being an author at some point. I, I would love to hear, you know, there's so many books that come out every year. Let's just talk straight, just in the business literature, part of the, part of the bookstore, right? Or part of Amazon. Yep. When you think about the way that you've broken through and just the, the really incredible response you've gotten, in addition to writing excellent material, what else do you think you've done that has, has brought you this type, kind of success? I've worked on real and important problems, right? So people often ask me, so, so my academic, when I was an academic, right, which I was sort of, sort of an academic for, for 20 years, my fellow academics were sort of blown away at the volume of writing I did. So I was dean for 15 years. While I was dean, I knew of no other dean that had written one book while being dean because it's a full-time job. And I wrote, I think, eight of my books. It was seven or eight of my books while, while, while being dean. I wrote more HBR articles than anybody on the planet during that, 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 that period. And then hundreds of other articles. They said, where, Roger, where do you get all your research ideas? That was the question they'd, they'd asked me. Like, as if there's a shortage, not, not as if, they experienced like that as a bottleneck. I need to get an idea before I can write something. And so I only write one article every few years. I write one article every was every two weeks. I'm now every week. The answer is I don't think about that. I literally don't. I just hang out with CEOs talking about their problems, what they're working on. And when I hear the same one a few times, I say, guess this is something that's on the minds of senior executives that they would like a solution to. And then I just go, go write something on that. And, and often I try to ex explain something to, to a CEO and come up with sort of a, a metaphor uh, for it. And this is what I'll write, I'll, I'm going to write about, write about next, which is I use as a metaphor because they were, the CEO was saying, well, we, you know, we love to have innovation, but it feels to me like right at the end of the process, it gets killed. And, and people are good hearted. They're trying to, there's something about our corporate processes that, that cause it to be, to be killed. And what struck me at the time was, was, well, you know, this is not unlike in modern law-based democratic economies. There's the presumption of innocence. So you are innocent until proven guilty. Now, why would that be the case? Why, why, why isn't it the other way? Well, it's really, really hard to prove you're innocent, right? Right. If, 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 if actually the, the, the prosecutor has the presumption of guilt and your and the defense has to has to prove innocence prove i wasn't there <laughs> yeah you can't you, you you can't do it and so everybody would go go to jail right and so we have the presumption of uh, innocence and it's the prosecutor's job to, to prove the person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt if you ask the question in innovation in doing something new what i'd argue is there's the presumption of guilt implicitly presumption of guilt, right? Which is, unless you can prove to be this is a good idea, we're not going to do it. Or prove it's better than our existing business model. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You got to prove it. And I said, 
that that's like having a presumption of guilt rather than a presumption of of innocence and there's a reason why in the history of of kind of modern democracies we've headed the other way but businesses essentially are countercultural on that and you know in the case of law who who gets hurt does the state get hurt or the individual no it's the individual in when you reverse it who gets who gets hurt right it's the it's the idea. So yeah. I'll just go right about that because it occurred to me when solving a real problem with a company. So that's that's how I that's that's how I get the ideas that that people seem to feel feel are are valuable. It's because they are tested on on in real contexts and real situations. No, I love it. You talked about advising CEO over at P&G. Any other famous famous companies you've advised CEOs at? Sure, lots. I mean, uh, the ones that have sort of publicly talked about me doing it with Lego, Ford Motor Company, Verizon, American Express, Dropbox. Yeah. Companies, yeah. companies, companies like that. Well, maybe for our, our my parting question here, there's so many people that would like to work with CEOs for whatever they're doing. When you think about just the incredible amounts of demands on their time and, and all the things that make that unlikely, what's one piece of advice you would have for people who are, who are trying to, to attract a CEO client or, or even just get that initial meeting? Well, I mean, I have, people ask me about this and I, I used to talk to students about it. I have what I call the doctrine of relentless utility. I think if you want to succeed, just always think about relentlessly being useful and not assuming anything in return, right? And, it, and in due course, it'll work for you. Now, if you're focusing on utility relentlessly, it means you'll have many reps because you're re relentlessly, you're focusing on utility Whose utility do you have to focus on? Not yours, it's somebody else's. So if you want to serve a CEO, try to figure out what problem is vexing them and help them out. Don't go in and say, and I'll help you out if you pay me, you know, $10 million, help them out. And they'll say, Dad, Dad, Jess, you know, when I had this problem before, he just threw out a kind of his thinking on it that sounded pretty good and we went and did it. Yeah. Who's I'm gonna call? I better call that guy because he was he was useful then. Chances are he'll continue to be useful. So the doctrine of relentless utility. That's that's my doctrine for 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 life, and I'd recommend it to anyone. Ah, I love it so much. It makes me think we should be running like investment classes that are not just for our clients. You know. Yes. And like help everybody, whether you're a client or not, teach, you know, help them simplify the Warren Buffett principles and just. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like it, it all, it all comes around, right? It, 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 it does. Now I maybe can say that more than you can say that. Why? Because I'm older, right? And so I, I, I get to watch it for longer and then you see the cycles and the, and the patterns and it, it, it does come back. And I, you know, I get a lot of calls out of the blue from somebody who I haven't done something with for 20 years. And they say, Roger, remember when we did it? You know, I've got a similar situation and, and can we do it? And, and so if you take that longer view, I think it'll, it, it'll, it'll come back 
to you. It is sort of, it's sort of, and now, now the modern term is pay it forward. I mean, pay it forward is a sort of a somewhat of a relentless utility kind of theory. And, and I, I, I buy that too. Just pay it forward and, and good things will happen. Love it. Well, everybody, please go get a copy of uh, Roger's new book, A New Way to Think, Amazon. Uh, go to his website, rogerlmartin.com. Uh, check out his live learning at disco.co. And Roger, thank you for doing this. Hey, thank you for having me, Jess. This was lots of fun. Uh, for me as well. Bye, everyone.